I don't know about you, Sean, but Haley Steinfeld is absolutely killing it right now between Arcane and Hawkeye, which is just the absolute best to see that so many people are finally discovering just how good she is in everything. Yes, 100% agree. Uh, it's funny, the first movie we actually saw in theaters together actually starred Haley Steinfeld as the main character. So kind of a full circle in a way. Yes. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Nerds Voice. Can you believe it, Sean? It's been 50 episodes. Holy crap. <laughs> I, wow, that, that's crazy. Um, I remember like over a year ago, when the can cork was really going, I was like, Hey, let's have these different podcasts. And, and you're just like, yeah, sure. And then, well, it's the only one that's so consistently going, but you've done probably mostly my, my fault is the reason why it's still going. Cause I've been wanting to do an entertainment podcast for years. I just, the can cork gave me the opportunity to start it and it's still going cause I'm in charge of the podcast. So Yes, and you've done a great job with it. Let's have a good episode 50. Yes, and of course, this week, because it's the week of Thanksgiving when we're recording this, we got the first two episodes of everyone's favorite Christmas show, or new favorite Christmas show, Hawkeye. Um, and going into this show, I was pretty certain I was going to like it, because it is heavily inspired by Matt Fraction and David Aya's, um run on Hawkeye. And I should clarify, it's kind of loosely based off of it because, yes, it stars Quint Barden and Kate Bishop with both of them having to deal with each other as characters and the passing down of the mantle and all of that. But what the show is doing different than the comic is the roles are reversed this time around with Quint acting as the more mature character of the two while Kate is tr still trying to figure out who she wants to be and what type of hero she wants to be. Well, in the comic, it was the reverse where Kate was the more high strung, um, had everything where she wanted it, knew exactly what she wanted type character while Quint was the one that was falling. Yeah. There, first of all, I did really enjoy these first episodes. Like right before recording, I did just, uh, finish watching these two episodes. One thing I really found interesting was the dynamic between the two. Clint is very conflicted how he feels about Kate just because, you know, she did she did kind of help put a dent in his Christmas plans, but he also knows that she wasn't, you know, she's not evil. She wasn't intentionally trying to do it. He does care, but obviously he's in a little bit of a crisis because, well, you know, family, it's kind of a big thing for him, like, like, it, like we really established for him in the NCU, and... I really, I really like the whole dynamic of uh, when you meet your heroes, they're not what you seem uh, kind of a thing. Obviously, it's not as extreme as, say, The Incredibles, where obviously that was taken to a whole different level of extreme. But I love, I love Kate basically saying, oh, oh, Avenger supplies, and then they're at a gas station, which yeah, I, they're just which that, I like found hilarious. Like your typical market. And yeah, I really like that Quint feels like he's constantly tired. Like he's just done with everyone's crap and just wants to move on and live a nice, peaceful life. He, there's a reason why he was so okay with taking the plea deal after the events of Civil War. It definitely seems like he's just tired of being a hero, especially after everything he's been through. 
In fact, I'm pretty sure that's a key reason why he left um, the Steve Rogers musical that we got at the beginning of the first episode so early on. That was hilarious, by the way. Yeah, it's very it's very Zoe and Campy, which I wasn't. I don't know if that's what I was expecting, but I mean, it makes sense. You know, it makes sense that they would take that any play based off of a character like Steve Rogers would be really chill, really cheesy and silly because that's kind of the roots of the character. But going off of that, the reason why Clint left halfway through is because he's still, he doesn't like, it's not just that he doesn't like thinking about what happened to uh, Natasha. He doesn't like thinking back to his time as a time with the Avengers or as a hero at all. And that's likely due to all of his experiences as an Avenger. I mean, you can look at his time when he was Hawkeye and Ronan, and he never really was able to catch a break. And that's probably part of the reason why he just wants to escape from it and never look back. Yeah, it's why he is so adamant about spending time with Shane. You could tell like he was trying to force all these activities just so he could kind of take his mind off. But yes, he wanted to have those bonding moments, but you could tell it was just like trying to like get his mind off because he doesn't want to think about it. And I love, I love the moment when, uh, when Kate asks him about his hearing and you just see all these explosions and flashbacks and all that. And he says, can't really tell, even though it's like, yeah, duh, it's what happens when you're a superhero and you're, and you're constantly around explosions. Yeah, your hearing is going to be a little messed up. Why don't th- – this is like a new concept that should be obvious. Yeah. See, what's wild about that is Hawkeye is partially deaf in the comics. That's, again, something that they're taking from – um, Fractions run and implementing into the show because one of the key elements of Hawkeye while Fractions was writing him was writing Quint specifically was that he was partially deaf um, and for similar reasons he'd seen so much action um, that and he never really took care of himself while he was in action so he became partially deaf it's just taken to the, the nice thing about it being part of the MCU is they can actually show what events led to him being partially deaf while it was just inferred in the comic yeah, I really like uh, having those. I'll, I'll look back at those moments, and and obviously, I found the opening scene where 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 Kate sees uh, uh, Hawkeye uh, shoot shoot the bow as he's falling down the building. Yeah, when he saves her. Yeah, there were a lot of people that predicted that the reason why Kate would become Hawkeye or see him as um, her hero was because he saved her during the Battle of New York. Because, again, in the comics, Kate Bishop was born in New York City. So that's like, it just seems obvious. It, it would be weird if they didn't go in that direction, you know? Yeah, it, it's still, it still was pretty cool to see, even though it was, it was pretty obvious. But, like, again, like that, that's one thing I like about all these TV shows, is that it brings, it brings a lot full circle. It brings... It, you know, it really brings everything together. Even though we're past the Infinity Saga, it's still tying things together. I think. Well, of I course. think it'd be weird if they didn't. You know. True, but they do. Like, these characters still exist in this universe. These events all happen to these characters. They live in the world where aliens have invaded New York, and the snap has happened. So it makes sense that a lot of the movies and shows that we get are affected by events in the past. I mean, it's not like. You, you can't just throw in these characters and have them not experience like the Battle of New York or act like it didn't happen. That'd be really strange. True, but it's done very naturally. It's not, 
it's not fan service forced on like, hey, remember this? Hey, remember this? It's done very naturally. Yes, agree. It's they, they're finding a nice sweet spot between wanting to keep everything connected and it feeling like the universe is too small by proxy of doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was my whole point with that is that it it does find it does find that good balance, and I really. I really enjoy how when Clint's at his family dinner mm-hmm. and the, the, the waiter pays for his dinner, you would think, oh, he appreciates that. But, but no, it, it just, he just seemed a little bothered by that. And that's, and, and that he wants to, to live a normal life. He doesn't yes. want, like, I can totally, as someone that grew, that grew up with autism, I totally understand where he's coming from on that. Like you don't want to be seen as different. Yeah, and, and and he's still affected by this in many ways. Also, when he and Kate were walking on the street, and a kid's like, I want to see the hero, and he immediately turns around thinking, oh, great, here we go again. Mm-hmm. And also, like, one thing I chuckled at during the theater scene was they barely mentioned Hawkeye, like, compared to everyone else. And I'm like, ah, so the MCU is self-aware that Hawkeye is almost everyone's least favorite Avenger. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, that's because up until now, Clint has sadly kind of gotten the shaft by the writing almost at every turn. I mean, like, I know that he got focused in Age of Ultron Endgame, but that's that's not enough. Um, like, he never really got heavily featured in a lot of the movies that he appeared in before his, like, major emotional moments, and that's not really good enough but i am happy that jeremy renner is finally getting a lot of time as the character because he's perfectly cast as clint he's great as him in this show um my favorite scene with him so far was easily the scene with him at the lark in episode two that was to deal with all these all these fanatical nerds and have to like go by the rules and then he quickly finds himself actually enjoying um being a part of it despite like the initial kind of rolling of the eyes the kind of being tired of like oh i have to i have to go and be a part of this thing and be out in public and interact with people i don't really want to do that because you know then they're going to treat me special because i'm hawkeye but it, he ends up actually having fun with it he does and that was i was laughing obviously i either had a dumb uh, look on my face or was laughing the whole time it was such a cheesy but an enjoyable scene i love how he said hey you made my day mm-hmm and I love how the guy's name was Grills. I love that. Yeah. I guarantee you that by the end of this season, that Kate will be the person that makes Quint realize that he actually does like being Hawkeye. That he likes being seen as the hero. Got a while to get there first before that. Yeah. But considering how much wider he's slowly been just from the second episode i think that that's where the show's going yeah i i yeah i think it's i mean the title is hawkeye and there's a lot of questions what does that mean exactly what does that is that something that is is that something that he wants is is that a name that should be retired like there's a lot of possibilities they could do just with the name and the title which i find really cool Absolutely. And of course, we haven't even really touched on, I mean, I have touched on Jeremy Renner, but what do you think of Haley Steinfeld as Kate Bishop so far? She's great. I really, I really enjoy her, her sarcasm and she, she feels very genuine. Um, a lot of her reactions to 
the pretty shocking things feel like what a normal person would react in a situation, you know, even though she is extremely skilled, um, you know, with the whole auction, with the whole uh, stepdad thing, which, well, you obviously can relate to that. Yeah, it's a fencing well. scene. Um, I think probably a standout moment for her as an archer is when she shoots the bell the, tower. Yeah, the bell tower and then also the fire extinguisher as well. That was really cool. Yeah. They're doing a decent job with showing off just like how talented both her and Quint are where we not just see them might be talented like with the bow, but like things like Quint catching the Molotov cocktail and then throwing it right back at the person that tossed it initially. That was really <laughs> awesome. It's the, it makes, it really shows that it's more than just him being good with a bow and arrow. He's good in hand-to-hand combat in general. He's just a really good combatant, and he can turn almost anything in his hand into a weapon at will. And I think that the show is doing a, a decent job of, of representing that so far, just two episodes in. More so than the MCU has before this, at least. Well, yeah, mainly before, before Avengers Endgame where we saw him as Ro- the one scene with him as Ronan, all we really saw was him just being really good with the bow and arrow. That's, that's about it. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't really get a whole lot of really, like, nice moments to shine. Except maybe in, in Civil War when he shoots Ant-Man with his bow. That's pretty cool. But Quint's never really had, like, a rule of cool moment in the MCU to me. And it's awesome that we're finally getting some of that with this show. It's just a shame that the show will likely be – it could – really be Jeremy Renner's last time as Quint. So it's a shame that we're only just now getting stuff like this. Is it confirmed that it is? I'm thinking it is. I don't think it's confirmed, though. Okay, that's what I thought, because I'm like, wait. I, I don't know if you... That's why I said it might be. That's not okay. why... I, that, that's key language there. Okay. Well, I'll be obviously very sad if it is, because... You know, every time he's every time he's on screen as as Clint, he's great. Like he was, he was born. This was like the character that he was born to play. If you look mm-hmm. at every accomplished actor or even voice actor as well, because we talk about this a lot too. Yeah, there is always one role that this actor, or voice actor, and obviously actresses as well are born, born to play. play. Yeah, and Marvel definitely gets that more than others because of just how good their casting director Sarah Finn is. Um, almost every single character, it's hard to think of another actor playing them. Yes, even even though we've had a couple casting changes, even the casting changes have been good. Yeah, um, although to be fair, the only casting change that had been casted by Sarah Finn in the first place was Terrence Howard as um, War Machine. Um, all of the, the recasting of, of Hulk for after Incredible Hulk Edward Norton was Universal's pick to play him. Marvel had always wanted Mark Ruffalo. And obviously that was pristine as well. Yeah, because Universal initially vetoed Mark Ruffalo, but then when it was just in Marvel's hands and they wanted to recast, it's not like Universal could stop them. That's one of the reasons why we've never gotten a Universal Hulk movie since the first Avengers. Right, and and obviously we'll see uh, just how great Oscar Isaac will be as Moon Knight. Yeah. Um, well, that will that end up being something like, because obviously he's Poe Dameron, but like he's not. But obviously that's not the role he was born to play as. Could Moon Knight end up being that role? 
time will tell. Maybe. Yeah, probably. Um, again, Marvel is so little misses when it comes to casting that I highly doubt that you know we will fall in love with Oscar Isaac as Moon Knight. And it's like the of all of the major film roles going forward. I mean, like, you look at Simu Wu and Shang-Chi, um, or even, like, despite the way that Eternals was written, almost all the cast members were perfect for their respective characters. So it's things like that. Especially uh, especially Richard Madden as Icarus, yes. I would say. And, and, and just one quick note on that. Um, I have started watching Game of Thrones, uh, about eight episodes in the first season. I can already... I can already tell why Richard Madden was selected as Icarus. I can already mm-hmm. tell, yes. uh, even though that was about a decade ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 role is that role is perfect for him. So it's it's cool to see other pop culture hits kind of make these perfect castings in the MCU. Yeah, I mean, like again. Casting is so important to Marvel that Hawkeye actually got delayed in production because they waited until Haley Steinfeld's agenda was open, like her timetable was open to start filming it, because they wanted her as Kate Bishop so badly. And 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 would you say that would you say that that's one thing that Marvel has over every every everyone else is the casting? For the most part, they're definitely compared to. DC, it's not even that DC's casting is just bad. I think it's that Marvel just always knows, they're always able to figure out who, what actor is best for a role. And again, that comes from b- both the casting director, Sarah Finn, and also Kevin Feige, and then the director working on these films as well. Because um, I don't know about other directors, but I know that James Gunn has specifically stated that he's always directly involved in the casting for the Guardians films, at least. I don't know if that's the same for the rest of Marvel, but I would imagine it probably is. Yeah, probably. But, but no, I would. It, I think that Marvel's just really, really good at it. I wouldn't say that any other studio is necessarily bad at it, but when it comes to knowing how to adapt their characters into the live action, they're really, really consistent. There's Absolutely. never really been a bad movie in the mcu there's just a bunch of passable ones at worst true and yeah because i would say i'm not counting the incredible hulk so i would say my least favorite mcu movie would be iron man 2 and even that's not a bad movie Mm -hmm. it's it's just it's a little rough yeah and that's mostly because it was rushed and they vetoed a lot of the ideas that john favreau had when in production for the movie and Disney wanted that to come out as fast as possible because they saw how well the first Iron Man did, and that was the first movie that came out after um, Disney had acquired uh, Marvel Studios. Yeah, it, it was so, just doomed from the start. Yeah, and it's amazing that it still turned out to be entertaining, at least. It definitely was entertaining. Yeah, it's still fun. Um, so that's as a testament of just kind of how good a lot of the casting and how good the direction still was despite all these factors against it. But no, overall, um, going back to the Hawkeye, I think the show's fun. Like, it's probably the most fun, like, just pure, like, enjoyable entertainment that we've gotten from the Marvel television side of things since um, WandaVision began back in January. Yeah, I definitely think 
that this is probably the most entertaining so far as well. Now, what if is probably the exception to that, just because uh, what if was just some of the most crazy fun I've had watching a show ever. Yeah, but what if still had episodes like the Doctor Strange episode in episode four? Um, they were still willing to touch on um, tougher and darker subject matter, like the Marvel Zombies episode, even though the tone could have been better for that one, or an episode eight with Ultron. So it's while it, what, there were a bunch of episodes that were fun, it wasn't just pure fun every single episode. And in fact, that, usually the episodes that weren't just pure fun were the ones that ended up being better because of the concepts that they were dealing with. While with Hawkeye, it seems like this show is just pure fun and seeing these characters bounce off of each other. Yeah, I mean, obviously there, are, there is substance to it, but I would agree with that. Yeah, uh, there's, less, there's less substance to Hawkeye than there is to other MCU shows, and honestly... I'm fine with that. That's to its benefit, because we saw how much WandaVision and Falcon Winter Soldier crumbled over how big of aspirations both of those shows had. When they got to their final episode, they couldn't handle everything they had tried to set up. Yeah, this is very simplistic in its direction. And yeah. I, I think know, the only reason sorry, go ahead. And I and I know that it's it's going to pay off because it's a very it's a, it's very linear. There's not you don't really have scenes of like, oh, there's there's this party now, there's this party. The only two parties are Clint and Kate. Like that's yeah. it. You, There's a whole lot of other like other. ongoing storylines other than them. And then um, at the end of episode two, we were introduced to Echo, who appears to be um, an antagonist or, or a deuteragonist type character that's meant to, to deal with her heroes, but may not be the main villain. Who knows? We'll have to wait um, for episode three next week to truly find out. It is a lot more linear, and there is a less bouncing around with different characters and different storylines, and that is also to its benefit. Um, it keeps everything simple and easier to catch on and understand while also making sure that there aren't, there isn't one single storyline that's getting more focus or more time or um, more emphasis or better writing. Because um, that's another one of the big issues that WandaVision and Weapon Winter Soldier had. Some of their subplots had to take a back seat because of some other things they wanted to emphasize in every episode. And that caused the writing to be on the Agreed. Yeah, I Loki, I think, is the only one that was actually able to balance all of its storylines equally. Well, yeah, I, it, it is overall the best one. But, yeah, I, it is very simple. I was never – my head – I was never really scratched my head at any point. I'm just like, okay, I'm just following along nicely. And it was, it was nice and entertaining to watch. And, and the last thing I'll say about the first two episodes is – so, obviously, the last couple of years, Cameron Richardson's had his movie marathon, and – Going through all those movies paid off for this because uh, Vera Farminga as uh, Kate's mother, Eleanor, she is awesome. And obviously, I, I've i gotten familiar with her uh, as Lorraine Warren in the, the Conjuring trilogy. Right. Uh, she plays off of Patrick Wilson very well. So it's nice, it's nice to see her uh, in the MCU because she's a fantastic actress, in my opinion. She should be emphasized more. And I thought she was – she brought a lot of emotion and a lot of heart to these first episodes. Honestly, my – probably my favorite part, honestly. Yeah. No, I, I, I really like Vera Farmiga. Um, I, of course, most recognize her from The Boy in the Striped Pajamas because she plays the mother in that movie. 
Oh, uh, don't remind was, me of that movie. That that yeah. that He's I'm so fantastic by that. I still remember watching her interview with Weatherman because it was shown. We had to watch the movie for, um, when I was in my freshman English class, and um, my teacher also showed us the David Weatherman interview with Vera Farmiga. You actually, wow. <laughs> it, I watched that in history club in high school. The, the, the movie with the most depressing ending ever. Well, one. I mean, it is pretty depressing. I don't know if it's the most depressing, but it's definitely up there. But yeah, yeah, it is really devastating. But I also knew what the ending was probably going to be like before even watching it. As someone with Jewish heritage, I, I, kinda, I had a feeling that I knew where the movie was going to be going. Fair enough. But yes, uh, overall, like very s- simplistic, fun, uh, loved, loved what they set up. And I just have a good feeling where everything is going. I think I think this one's going to stick the landing. Yeah. What do you think of the rumors that we might be seeing um, Vincent D'Onofrio as Kingpin by the end of the season? Ooh, I didn't even hear about that. But my reaction to this, uh, it, it, first of all, like if, in, if, if we do see Vincent D'Onofrio as him, it would be really cool. But it would make sense just because Ronan was a menace to the underworld. And, you know, that's already been heavily addressed in these first two episodes. So if Ronan terrorizes the underworld, uh, isn't you know a certain dude kind of pulling a lot of strings inside underworld? So obviously he would have at least something to say about Ronan. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I'm the big reason why that rumor is circulating so much is because Vincent D'Onofrio has been posting a lot about Hawkeye, uh, saying that he's enjoying it. He's been liking a lot of tweets involving the show and has been for months. Um, so a lot of people have been taking this to mean that he, we might be seeing him considering that he played Kingpin and Daredevil, um, for him to be liking a lot of like tweets about Hawkeye makes it seem like maybe he has something more to do with the show than just simply enjoying it. Yeah, definitely, uh, dropping some hints, uh, with that activities, but it would be pretty cool if, if the rumors are true. Absolutely. All right. Well, we also watched the second act of Arcane this week. And this, to me, is when the show starts getting really good. I mean, we get to the end of episode three. We get the whole shakeup and dynamic. We have Powder now working with Soko. We have Vi taken in by Marcus, um, the prison. Um, we have Jason Victor um, discovering Hextech and it becoming a big part of design and Piltover. And then we have it, this huge time jump to where the characters are almost a decade later from what it seems. And the whole balance of power in both Piltover and Zahn is completely changed. Um, Both because, again, like Victor and Jace discovering Hextech and that becoming a big part of Piltover's society with them implementing the Hexgates, but also because uh, the Waynes is now completely different because of Silco being in charge and, and Vander being gone. Yeah, uh, lots of process in those three episodes. Um, the first thing i got to say, and this is, honestly, there's not much I think about other than this one aspect of those three episodes. Um, so can we agree that Jace is by far best character? Because that, that is a conclusion that I've come to. Jace is the best character? Really? Easily. easily. Why do you think Jace is the best character? Because I, I vehemently he, disagree, but I'm curious why you think so. Because he's literally... He's literally Ironwood, but even better. 
I mean, yeah, explain what you mean by like what why he's like Ironwood. Because I know what you mean, but the audience might not. Okay. So all right. So, so Ironwood is a is is a very intelligent guy who has a lot of resources at his disposal and he wants to protect his people. He wants to protect his city. And he starts out very humble, willing to work with others. But as things start to go wrong, he starts to become a little distrustful. And then he starts to act very recklessly. That describes Ironwood before the very end of book seven, volume seven, Ruby, my bad, and Jay's through the first six episodes of our game. And also, Jay's, I don't know how I feel about this guy because he has a good heart. He, he does good things. He just is a little too ambition, and there's no one there to really rein in what he does. Except for Victor and Heimerdinger, but Victor is kind of too is a little busy trying to make sure that he's not going to die, (laughs) and well, Jace kind of made it so that Heimerdinger won't be looking after him by excommunicating him from the council because of the amount of power. No, no, no! It's forcing him into an early retirement. Yeah, checks and balances, everyone. But yeah. And yeah, he's also in a relationship with a fellow councilwoman. We're pretty sure he's using him, right? Oh my god, my brain! I mean, it, it does seem like she has a little bit of compassion because we we get my favorite for for reference or my favorite at this point in the show. My favorite character is Victor because I love me my broken messes, and Victor for sure is a broken mess just waiting to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm terrified what Victor is going to do the, the for the last he, three episodes. At, he is probably the most sympathetic and probably the most maybe morally right character in Arcane. He wants all of his inventions to be used for the common good. He doesn't like them being taken over by Piltover's government and politics. He certainly wouldn't like the fact that Jace is giving the other council members express use of Hextech ahead of the public getting it, especially when they're designing things like the gauntlets to be used for mining companies or um, the Hextech laser that Victor made to be used for artisans, um, while Victor is making deals over trade and stuff like that, things that are very not in line with the way that Victor wants Hextech to be used. Yeah, and that's... And like I'm learning with Game of Thrones, when you mix politics into things, it never ends well. Yeah, you can have the best intentions, but someone will always want to use your creation for their own needs and desires. And that's something that Victor has been worried about probably his whole life. And that's only coming to fruition now with his partnership with Jace. And what's really interesting is that both of them are going down the rabbit hill in their own ways. Both of them are diving in deep into hell through their own desires and their own progress. Both of them think they're doing good and think that they're making decisions to try to maximize the good that they can make. Victor trying to prolong his life is also trying to ensure that he's there to, to make sure that the hextech never falls into the wrong hands. But in the process, he's bloodying his own hands. And Jay, similarly, is quite literally bloodying his own hands by getting involved with politics and dealing with blood money. Yeah, you, you know the thing about ambition? 
is that if there's no contentment, there's no ceiling on ambition. Mm-hmm. And it and it will always end poorly. And that's why again contentment is key because you can have all the ambition, but if you're grateful with what you have and you find the balance, that's that's what leads to that's what leads to true success. Having no cap, no ceiling on that ambition is very dangerous. And unfortunately, Jason Victor don't have that cap. That they're never satisfied. Mm-hmm. They they need everything to be well. Okay, Victor's much more simple. He's literally dying, but Jace doesn't have that ceiling, and I'm I'm he's terrified. Too he he's too as Victor says in episode two. Lane looks through his notes and sees a signs every single page of his notes. Jace is egotistical. It's the same reason why his face is plastered over everything on progress progress day in episode four, because he doesn't mind being in the spotlight again. Um, the pose as a complete opposite the Victor who really doesn't want to be the face of anything. He just wants his creations to be out there. He would rather people be using the things he create than his face be plastered all over them. And yet Jace revels in the excitement. Yeah. He revels in the attention that he's getting because he's never really had any success before this point. I mean, he almost committed suicide in episode two because he didn't see a future for himself because he saw all of his wife's work getting destroyed and tarnished over one wrong decision. And this is why I say Jason's best character because I don't because you don't know how to feel about this guy. You know deep down he has good intentions, but his flaws are kind of masking that. Mm-hmm. And he's easily and he's and he's in my opinion the most thought provoking character. I do, like I can't stop thinking about Jace because I don't know how to feel about this guy. Damn it. <laughs> See, that's wild. You want to know why that's wild? Because almost why? every character in Arcade is like that. For me, though, it's very straightforward how I feel about almost everyone else. For me personally. Well, speaking of the fact that I really like broken messes, I oh, God. love, I absolutely love the writing for Jinx um, in episodes four through six. Um, this is exactly what I thought we would get going into this show because I, of course, know Jinx from the game because I played it. Um, but after the events of episode three, with her being, with by ditching her somewhat, somewhat intentionally, somewhat unintentionally because she was, of course, taken by Marcus, but we get this incredibly broken character. Um, it's very clear that Jinx needs someone to rely on in order for her psyche to stay intact and that reliance is on Soko who is constantly putting the voice in their head that everyone else has betrayed her except for him it it seems like this kind of abusive relationship but what's crazy about it is that Soko actually genuinely loves Jinx as his own daughter like cares for her deeply would be willing to throw away his entire operation over her yeah, so every time Jinx was on screen, I well, I just feel pity. Like, like this is it's like pain. pain yeah, pain. it's because like, you you see, you want to see the version of her that biases. You want her to still be powder that we got in the first three episodes. Yeah, that that ship is most as kind of sailed. 
just a bit for now at least um do you see redemption for her no i i don't know if i'm ready for this <laughs> but here's what i'll say when, when, I look, when i look at jinx all, all i have to say is this by the time i see her all i think about is the look on her face when Selko goes up to the end of episode three that's all i see all I see is a scared little child underneath that facade. That's why my thoughts about her are very straightforward, because all I just see is a broken girl putting on a facade. That's all I see. Yeah. Um, Jinx wants desperately the both please Silco, her father, and also be just as strong as her sister, Vi. Um, we get that beautiful scene in episode five when she goes back to their training grounds that we saw in episode two. And she um, puts back together uh, the boxing machine that Vi was using. And when she goes to it, she replicates a lot of Vi's movements almost exactly. Yet she still isn't as good as her sister. As we see when she gets onto the scoreboard, she's still number two. Yeah, she still could No matter how hard she tries, she still couldn't win. Cause, mm-hmm. And that just shows you how, how incredibly strong Vi is. And speaking of of our red haired sister. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, she, let's just say she kind of adapted a little too well to prison life. Cause dear God. Yeah. She's strong. Yeah. Um, no, I really like Vi because you mentioned how much Jinx is a child trapped, like trapped in um, a broken body. Vi is almost exactly like that too. She never, grew up because she never experienced the outside world. She still views everything the way that she did when she was a child and son. She still sees the enforcers as these big bad monsters that took um, her and Powder's parents away from her. And she doesn't really understand the moral complexities like everyone else around the same age as her, which is really interesting because when you pair her with a character like Caitlin that has similarly been stuck behind blinders and has not never really seen the world underneath her never seen anything outside of a piltover let alone her own like mansion it's it's really nice it's a very nice compatibility that we're seeing two characters both kind of experience the sort of a fish out of waterness with Vi having to realize that not everyone not everyone in piltover is as evil as she thought while caitlin is realizing that zon is far worse than she could have ever imagined and now we talk about my favorite character, which is Caitlin. Uh, I just, I really enjoy every time she, every time she's on screen ever since episode, uh, f- episode four has started. It's, it's an experience because she, she is literally, as you just explained, the polar opposite of Vi, but also very similar. And their dynamic is easily the best dynamic of the whole show, mm-hmm. in my opinion because of how different they are but and the, but they're also hilarious together and i love how caitlin grew up in this very blue uh you know white collar place and then she is willing to go down to zon and the scene just makes me laugh so to get information vi takes caitlin to a brothel and caitlin reluctantly agrees to play the part let's just leave it at that to get the information the fact that she's willing to do that astounds me yeah i also appreciate that kind of look in Vi's face when she sees caitlin with another girl like ah 
Yes. Good. <laughs> As if we immediately knew at that moment that Vi had feelings for Caitlin. I mean... They're not very subtle with this. <laughs> no. And, and It's very and clear like, that the writers really intended for them to eventually... Like, I don't know. They've been shipping the game a lot, so it, it makes perfect sense for them to have a relationship in the show. But it seems like the writers were really pushing for that to happen. And to my knowledge, the line where Vi um, refers to Caitlin as a cupcake at the end of episode five was a line that the writers really had to fight to keep in the script. Because there were a lot of arguments over whether that would be in Vi's character or not to be so sweet to someone that she just met. But it's so cute and it works, though. Yes. Because it feels so natural. I mean, I mean let, let, let's, let's be real here. Like, what's not to like about the other person? Mm-hmm. And I, I just love seeing us two together. And it was interesting when, when Vi looked like she was, you know, conf- uh, consoling powder and reuniting. And then Caitlin appears and, well. Yeah, yeah we get the small, the small moment where powder is back, right? When, when yes. she's hugging Vi for the first time. Because that's what Jinx always really wanted. She always wanted for Vi to find her and bring her back. That's what she always secretly wanted to happen. So when Vi finally does come back and hugs her, you immediately see Powder return in her eyes of how emotional she gets, of how vulnerable she chooses to be in that moment. And then once she sees Vi with Caitlyn, she immediately realizes that Vi might not be the person that she was when they were kids anymore. That she has changed, just like Savika said. Yes, and would you like to talk about possibly your favorite scene in the in the whole first six episodes? Yeah, because, again, like, I really love what they're doing with Jinx, and from episode four, we immediately see that she's haunted by the voices of those that she killed in episode three. She's haunted by the voices of, of Quagger and Milo, especially Milo in her head, because Milo was always the one constantly pushing her down, calling her a jinx, as we saw in the, throughout the first three episodes. He was always the one that was the most negative towards her. Bai's voice was always the one picking, trying to pick her back up. So it makes sense that he, she doesn't really have any dolls for Bai, um, and that she turned the imagery of Bai into her Gatling gun, Pow Pow, which, which is the nickname that Bai always called her. That's the name oh, yeah, I forgot about then. that. Yeah. So we see her always carrying the ghosts of um, the people from her past with her. Um, but Milo's voice especially is always dragging her down, which is why he's the one that we always see as the ghost behind her, as the one haunting her whenever she's second-guessing herself, whenever she does something wrong and is blamed over it. It's always Milo's voice pushing her down further, making her feel more inadequate as if she doesn't deserve the praise that she's getting from Silco, or she doesn't deserve the love that she gets from Vi. And when I, I absolutely love the scene in episode six, when she finally pulls out the foyer that Vi gave her back in episode three to like, because she at that point knew that Vi was back and that Vi was looking for her, or at least that's what she wanted to believe. She wanted to believe that her sister was out there looking for her. And when she pulls out the foyer, you see Milo and Quagger's ghosts because the Jinx, they're also calling out for Vi just as much as she is. And it's a breathtaking visual. How, 
I, I we talked about this in the last podcast, but the visuals are just insane for this show. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not a single moment where the animation do- doesn't just hit on a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. And the music I, for that moment is fantastic as well, too, with the Warricks um, correlating the how Jinx was feeling in that exact moment as the the monster that didn't really want to be a monster and want just wanted to be human again thinking that Vi would be able to give her that that release from being the monster that she's become while with Silco, that Vi might be able to bring her back. And I think that the end of episode six with Jinx screaming when Vi is taken by the firelights demonstrates her worst fears that she is beyond redemption, that despite Vi's love for her, Vi is different now, and Vi might not be able to love her the way that she is in the moment. That she what can't happens, be powder again. It's what happens when you spend a decade in prison. Mm-hmm. It kind of it hardens your heart a bit, let's just say. Yeah, but it's, it's, not, it's not that. It's not by having a hardened heart because she still loves powder. She still loves Jinx, but she wants powder back. Every moment that she spent in prison was her wanting to get out and find powder and make sure she was okay and the protector from Soko and to get her back. But when she gets out and realizes how much Jinx is, that powder has become Jinx and how much she's changed, um, and Jinx realizing that all Vi wants is powder back, that Vi probably won't be able to love her as she is now. And that's exemplified by the, the Jinx that Vi is able to work with the enforcers, that she is able to have compassion for the person that was seemingly the enemy before. And that is the enemy, the Silco and Jinx. Yeah, that is true. Mm-hmm. But, and we haven't even really touched on Silco that much. He is such a good villain. In the first three episodes, when Silco's first introduced, he seems like your basic black and white villain, right? Yes. But at the end of episode, in episode three, we, we learn how close he was with Vander, that he was someone that was betrayed by his own brother. And when Jinx is pushed away by Vi, when Powder is pushed away by Vi, he sees himself in her. And through that bond, he becomes attached to someone in a way that he had never beforehand. It is clear just from episode four that he loves Jinx and is willing to protect her more than anyone else. It's different from Vander because Vander was always compassionate. Vander was always willing to throw stuff away for the people that were under his protection, but especially his own kids. But for Soko, it's just Jinx that's like that. And to everyone around him, it makes him seem like he's weak, as if he's losing his touch, because he's seemingly throwing away his enterprise, making excuses, um, tossing blame somewhere else when Marcus comes to him looking for someone to place blame on for failed operations, for the dead enforcers that Jinx is killing, for all the the things that she's doing without Soko's permission. Yet he's still willing to defend her despite all of the problems she is creating for him. Something that he would never have done in the first start. Yes, and he, because of how closely he relates with her, he tries to, you know, help her on the same path that he did, you know, especially in the scene where he kind of baptizes her in the filthy water, for example. Like, like because as Soko said, the person, the person that I was died, and now some, and now something... Uh, much better came out, something much more powerful. Mm-hmm. 
and he wants the same for her because of how it made him feel. Yeah, it, it alludes to his speech from the first that power isn't something you're born with or something that is welded inside of you. It's something that you will do anything to strive towards. And that is Soko's whole motto, and he's trying to teach that the Jinx in that moment, um, that she needs to... It, it's a very... Because we always like the reference Star Wars. It's a very Sith-like ideal that want to kill your past self for your, your darker self to take over fully. You have to kill the past to embrace your present and your future. That's a very Sith or dark side-like um, mythos or belief um, that is, again, like most shown in The Last Jedi with Kylo Ren, and that's a belief that Soko is trying to pass on to Jinx because that's how he views himself. Someone that killed his past to become the strong leader of this enterprise that he's built in the lanes and eventually in all of Zon. Yeah, it, uh, it's essentially what happened. Revenge of Sith. Anakin died, and Vader was reborn. At you know, the the, they're too, they, the whole saga makes it clear they're two very different people. In that, in that, uh, well, I, I think it's more that Vader wants them to be two different people, but he. If you read the, the comics and stuff that are bridging the movies, it's very clear, and also Star Wars Rebels, it's very clear that Anakin, that Vader always wants to stomp out any trace of Anakin, but he's never quite able to. There's always something lingering inside of him. There's always the, the hope that he'll be redeemed or that he'll be able to become Anakin again. Well, true. Well, I, meant, well, I meant in the eyes of a Palpatine. Yes. Um, yeah, I, my bad for, yeah, of course I understood that, but in the eyes of Palpatine, I meant to say, but yeah, and, and that's what, you know, Silco wants, wants, wants to see is, is to see that, is see, see that person reborn, and yeah. I don't and I like where what, that is heading. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting is Silco thinks that Jinx is the way she is because of him, because of his influence on her, but we know that's not the case. Exactly. We know that it's that the reason Jinx is the way she is is because she just wants Vi back. She just wants her sister back. And that's Haley's... the reason why she blows the flare at the end of episode six. It's the reason why she calls Sabika a liar and paints all over her in that scene above the desk. It's the reason why Soko throws such a fit because he knows this. He knows that Vi has enough influence on his daughter, that she might not be his daughter anymore if Vi gets to her. He's scared that he might lose the one thing that he loves more than anything else, more than his, than his dream for the Undercity. Yeah, and that's, that really creates a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and going into like Soko's ruthlessness, you can see how heavy-handed he is with everyone else with the way that he treats Marcus. And I really got to give the show props for actually making Marcus a well-developed character in Arc 2, too, because when we're first introduced to him in Act 1, we think that he's just your cookie-cutter cop that wants all this influence, that wants all this power, that wants the, the change everything and, and wants to have power over, over Zahn and sees Silco as a way of getting there. But when we get them in Act 2, when he has the position that he won, when he is sheriff, he's realizing that his decisions that he made in Act 1 are haunting his every move in Act 2. That his, that his stupidity and his youth has made his adult life a living hell. 
Oh yeah, his his house is not even safe. Mm-hmm. Where, where and, and I think that the and that's my guess. You mentioned his house isn't safe because of his daughter, and that's the I think that's the biggest reason why he's so different than he was in Act One because now he actually has something to lose. And you see the terror in his face when he sees Silco playing with her, mm-hmm. which on the surface may seem normal, but. The, the the true intentions and the meaning deep down is is quite haunting for him. Mm-hmm. Because, like, again, Soko is willing to lose everything. He's willing to kill anything in order to get, make his dream be fulfilled, except for his daughter. That's his one weakness. And Marcus has a similar one. Mm-hmm. Which is also another problem. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, like, again, it's, it amazes me how complex the show is, how strong the writing is, how, again, how good the animation and art direction is. Everything's amazing. And Ella Purnell's performance as Jinx in this show is wonderful. She is so good. She is able to really capture how broken Jinx's mind is in every scene she's in. Yeah, and to bring this full circle on the podcast, Haley Steinfeld continues to have powerful emotion as Vi, and, and she's so good that sometimes I can't even tell who the voice actress is, because mm-hmm. Vi's her own distinguished character, but Haley Steinfeld has range, uh, and I love, and every time Vi's on screen, uh, she has a presence, and Haley Steinfeld helps bring that to life, so Haley Steinfeld... Uh, stocks are going up let's just say yeah and of course with the way that episode six ended with um victor going to go see singed with jace excommunicating heimerdinger from the council um with vi and caitlin being taken by the firelights and jinx's freak out at the end there as well as her now distrust um for silko because she believes that he lied to her about vi being dead where do you think all all this stuff is going to be picked up going into Act 3. Well, I think Victor is going to... It, it's going to be like... It's, it kind of reminds me of the the trailers for Morbius where where you have where you have a doctor on the, on the verge of death and then suddenly he feels the most alive and I think he's going to feel really guilty about it, but he's going to feel very alive and very happy. But it's it's never going to come at a peaceful uh, outcome for him mentally because he knows of what he had that he sacrificed his own humanity. Yeah, he's uh, gaining he's gaining in his physical, but he's losing in his mental. Yeah, he's, what, he's yeah. becoming physically stronger, but losing what made his mind so brilliant. What made what made him such a important figure for Piltover's progress. What made yes. him such an influential part of that section of the world and also what made him such a good friend for Jace. Yes, and speaking of Jace, I think he's just going to continue to be more reckless and more rash and I think there's going to be a lot of distrust starting to be geared towards him. Um, as for as for as for Vi, uh, obviously, w- when it comes to the fire, what is the group's name again? Remind me. The Firelights. 
Fire named after the the lightning bugs that are in Zon. Right. So I think Vi is gonna have a bit of an interesting conversation with the Firelights, and I think I don't think the Firelights gonna be true antagonists. I think maybe ally, maybe anti-hero, something like that. Yeah, because we saw them messing with Silco's cargo in episode four, so they're obviously more of a rebellious group that is against Silco, and it makes their ideals would line up with Vi's. Because all, aside from recovering her sister, Vi also wants to stomp out Silco because he's destroyed everything that Vander built. Yes, and I think Powder is going to... I think Powder's going to descend even more into Madness to the point where I think at the end of the season, she's going to be totally isolated. I think the the way I think it ends with Jinx is that she leaves. Like Zon pilt over, she leaves everything, and it's just by herself mm-hmm. is my prediction for that. So that's where I think Act 3 is going to go. Why do you think the Firelights captured Vi and Caitlyn? Well, be, I think I think I think they're looking for allies, and I think they're looking for support because I think that they have been noticing how much of an impact Caitlyn and Vi have made. So they're thinking, okay, let's see if we can get these two on our side. That's my guess. But any any final thoughts on Act Two before we wrap up the podcast, Sean? I'm scared for Act Three. <laughs> I'm very scared. Yeah, no, I again, I love the show. It's probably my favorite of the year, and the way that Episode Six ends is fantastic. I love, I love it with a really ending on Jinx's scream as she yells no, and it really ends off on on making you question, or rather, making her question whether or not Bai was real in the first place. Yeah, I, I, I think like that, that it's actually really smart that as soon as she gets Vi back, as soon as she has her sister back in her in her life, she's taken away just as quickly. Yeah, I did like that. So very curious to see what they do going forward. Of course, that will do it for this week's episode of the podcast. If you liked hearing our thoughts on Hawkeye and Arcane, we'll be covering those shows again next week. And of course, you can follow us on Spotify or you can subscribe to us on The Rich Report for free. You can get our podcast every week as it goes out every single weekend, usually Saturdays, unless I can't edit it in time, then it goes out on Sundays, but always every weekend. Um, Sean, what do you have coming up on The Rich Report this coming week? All right, so we are recording this on a Black Friday, and as we're recording this, I'm about about a third of my of the way through my Super Mario Galaxy review because uh, I beat it a few days ago, so it's still pretty fresh in my head. So uh, look forward to that review. Should have it done. So so for recording on Friday, should have it done by tomorrow, which is Saturday, and should be out su- Sunday or Monday. Uh, going to Going to write about TCU's new head coaching hire, Sonny Dykes, and we'll we'll see after that. But at least for right now, look forward to those two things. How about yourself? Yeah, I of course had the chance to finally finish by with Evergarden last night. I've been kind of putting it off because the only things I had left were the movies, and they're kind of long. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure I had time outside of school to really kind of dive in and. and um, go in depth with them and also have enough room afterwards to shed quite a few tears. And 
the movie only cemented that it is easily one of my favorite anime of all time. And I, of course, wrote a review of it the day that we're recording um, on Black Friday. So it'll, it's already out by the time this is recorded. If, you're, if you really need a, a emotional show that, um, that's very character-driven and very slice-of-lifey, but also um, kind of a parody piece drama, uh, Violet Evergarden might be perfect for you. It deals with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, the protagonist has a lot of um, qualities that, that can be taken as as um, an allegory or seemingly autistic, which of course hits really hard for me, seeing as I have autism. Um, and it's just a really impactful show. It's it's really good. I can't recommend it enough. And it's of course done by Kyoto Animation, who's the same studio behind A Silent Voice. So the animation is breathtaking as well. Um, I can't recommend the show enough. The, and the movie was perfection and ended the, the series off on uh, even better than I thought it would. But going into the coming week on, gosh, tomorrow, hopefully the day that the podcast goes out, I will be watching the final episode of Kageki Shoujo because it's getting dubbed on Saturday the 27th. So hopefully a review of the whole show will go out soon after that. It is... If, if the final episode sticks to my ending, which, pro- which it probably will, it will probably end up being my second favorite anime of the year after Divi. It is that good. It's just a really nice um, girl-focused slice of life anime dealing with the trauma of trying to make it in entertainment and all the pressure from that. With them going to a theater school and all the, all the pressure that they put on, put on themselves to be the best they can be in the to make sure that they can make it, that they can graduate, and that they can um, be the great performers that they want to be, and make their dreams happen. And all the, all of the pain and the stress and the, and um, and conflict that comes from that. Um, the main, my favorite character, I her again, like I'm a sucker for characters that have a hard time showing emotion, but she is so emotionally damaged that she has a hard time expressing anything through her performances despite having a background in entertainment being an idol before that. And it's just such an interesting and in-depth show, and it's such a shame that it was so unpopular while it was airing over the summer. So I can never, I can never recommend it enough. It's amazing. I think everyone needs to watch it, despite how tough some of the topics and subject matter it tackles is. Um, other than that, I hopefully will be also watching Tick, Tick, Boom tomorrow, which is a new movie directed by Wynn Manuel Miranda, starring Andrew Garfield. So I'm excited for that. Should be interesting. Um, and, of course, House of Gucci also came out this weekend, so hopefully I'll be able to see that sometime within the coming week. Sounds very good. And, yes, I'm hoping to uh, sit down and watch Violet Evergarden at some point. The, considering that I got through Fruits Basket, I think I already know what I'm going to expect here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's about the same level of sad. And the ending is about is just as good as Fruits Baskets. Very good. So, but, but no, that'll, that'll, of course, do it for this week's episode of the podcast. So thank you all for watching. Have a great rest of your day.